you know this passage fairly well, but I would commend this passage to you for your individual meditation and thoughts. Let me just offer a brief word of prayer for God's help. Father, I thank you for your holy word. I thank you that though this passage was written several thousand years back, it still speaks to us with the freshness we need. I thank you for everyone who has served you in different capacities in our church in the last two and a half years. We have had a famine of being together, Lord, but we thank you, Lord, that we are together again after many, many months. And I ask, Lord, that as I share a few thoughts, you would bless my meditation and the words of my mouth. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I generally assume that most people can't remember 80% of what a sermon includes. So I want to front load the three top messages for you. So even if you forget everything else, I hope you'll remember these three things. Uh, the first is, as my title has indicated, uh, Joseph's attitude predicted his altitude. And I would submit to you that this is basically in part due to the sufferings and the injustices that he went through but also that he responded in submitting himself to the will of God in those adverse circumstances. The second thing I want to leave with you is that Joseph left the injustices in his past in order to be present and fruitful for the future. This was also an act of his will. He really determined that he was not going to live in the past. And finally, Joseph depended on God alone, but he was also very, very practical. In other words, I would submit to you that godly wisdom must translate into action. It must translate into an understanding of people, an understanding of situations, but one must wait upon God for the right time to act. So there are basically three uh, main themes that I could pick up from this chapter. You can see it on your sermon outline. And in the first 13 verses, I would submit to you that God's supernatural plans are complemented by the willing collaboration of human beings. Who are the human beings who are collaborating with God? We see that in verse uh, 13, I think, uh, verse 9, it's the chief cupbearer who begins to speak. He admits finally and almost in a confession in Pharaoh's court that he had done something wrong and that was a sin of omission. He suddenly remembers that he had been benefited by Joseph's ability to interpret dreams. And if you think about it, the cupbearer is actually an extremely important official. He tastes everything that the king eats because the risk of assassination in those days was basically through poisoning. So he was basically Pharaoh's last line of defense. And here, this cupbearer is confessing that he did something wrong. It's a sin of omission. And actually, if you think about it, it's a very risky thing that the cupbearer is doing. He is openly admitting his fault in the presence of Pharaoh. And there's nothing preventing Pharaoh from throwing this guy back into prison. There's nothing preventing him. Just because he's confessing a wrongdoing doesn't mean he'll get off light. So the cupbearer is actually taking a huge risk and he's acting within his moral compass. We also see that Pharaoh openly admitted his lack of understanding. There was nothing for him to prevent hiding his dreams, but he shares his dreams in the open court. He's acting according to his admission of failure. We also see that the Egyptian wise men and the magicians who are like the elite intellectual class of a very powerful society also admitted that they didn't understand what the dreams meant. 
And just as a, a sister civilization, Babylon was very well versed in the occultic arts and almost the occultic sciences, even then they admitted that they didn't know how to interpret this dream. So what's going on? Let's look at the context. Egypt is a very powerful society. It's a very, very stable society. Historians tell us that the structure of Egypt, the social structure of Egypt was very, very strong. It was a very coherent society. I don't need to tell you how impressive are the achievements of Egyptian technology. The pyramids could not be understood until the turn of the previous century. And even people who study taxonomy and uh, the arts of uh, mummifying bodies will tell us that, that the abilities of the Egyptians were extremely advanced for their times. They could preserve a human body in very, very uh, adverse conditions. So they had an understanding of nature, they had an understanding of the heavens and the earth, they had an understanding of cause and effect, and they built these great monuments. In short, Egypt is also not just a very powerful society, but in the scriptures, it's regarded by biblical scholars as a type. What does it mean when biblical scholars say that Egypt is a type? It basically means that there are certain characters and symbols in the Bible that stand for larger truths and larger facts, larger patterns beyond the specific passage. And here, the leader of Egypt, this superpower, is at a turning point. The leader of this very, very powerful society, the elite of this powerful society, don't know what to do next. May I submit to you that, that even today, we are very, very confident in our abilities and knowledge. It's not at all in our current context to ignore God. It's not very difficult to forget God because we can do so much. We can handle cancer, we can handle climate change, we can fight wars, we can generate economic growth. There's a huge body of knowledge. You walk, a few, you, follow, you walk a few hundred meters, you reach the Indian Institute of Technology. Very easy to walk into, but not a walk to get admission into. It's a very sophisticated institute of higher learning in India. But God does not like this level of human pride. And throughout the Old Testament, there are references to Egypt, both specific to the historical context, but also in which God is saying Egypt represents this human tendency to glorify itself. So if you can turn with me to Isaiah chapter 30, God condemns this human tendency to glorify itself, to seek alliances. And I'll read for you a certain section of the prophetic passage from Isaiah, and of course Isaiah is speaking specifically at that time, but you'll see what I'm saying when I uh, read the entire passage to you. Isaiah chapter 30 verses 1 to 5. Woe to the rebellious children, declares the Lord, who execute a plan but not mine, and make an alliance but not of my spirit in order to add sin to sin who proceed down to Egypt without consulting me to take refuge in the safety of Pharaoh and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore, the safety of Pharaoh will be your shame and the shelter in the shadow of Egypt your humiliation. For their princes are at Zoan and their ambassadors arrive at Hanis. Everyone will be ashamed because of a people who cannot profit them, who are not for help or for profit, but for shame and also for reproach. 
So even uh, several hundred years down the line from the events in this passage, God is saying to the people of Israel, you look for help in Egypt, but it will not be found. It will be to your shame and to your reproach. And if you fast forward down to the 20th century, even perceptive intellectuals who have made observations about historical patterns say similar things. Uh, I wonder if you know about uh, the 1976 Nobel laureate in literature, a Russian writer called Alexander Solzhenitsyn. He was very critical of what the Soviets had done through the concentration camps in their own country. And in 1982, he was awarded a very prestigious prize called the Templeton Prize for Religious Freedom. And during that speech, he almost speaks very prophetically about what went wrong in Russia. And let me quote two paragraphs from his speech. It's really worth uh, reading and downloading. Alexander Solzhenitsyn writes, Over half a century ago, while I was still a child, I recall hearing a number of older people offering the following explanation for the great disasters that had befallen Russia. Men have forgotten God. That's why all this has happened. Since then, I have spent nearly 50 years working on the history of our Russian Revolution. In the process, I have read hundreds of books, collected hundreds of personal testimonies, and have already contributed eight volumes of my own towards the effort of clearing away the rubble left by that upheaval. But if I were asked today to formulate as concisely as possible the main cause of the ruinous revolution, the October 1917 revolution, that ate up, swallowed up 60 million of our people, I could not put it more accurately than to repeat men have forgotten God. That's why all this has happened. Men have forgotten God. That's why all this has happened. You may say, well, this is at the social and the historical and the prophetic scale. Men and women don't need God. But let me paraphrase to you things that I have heard with my own ears in the last few years. Here is a paraphrase of something a young woman said and I overheard. Career is very important, one young woman said. I'm going to work until I'm in my 30s, and only after I reach a very high position will I get married. And if need be, I'll go for IVF to have kids. Another person, this was their life financial strategy. We just have to have our dream house now. We absolutely must. Doesn't matter if the EMIs are high, we just have to have that flat that costs between three and five crores. And you know what? We can do it. One income for the EMI from my salary, and we'll live on the salary of my wife for the rest. These are just illustrations of our contemporary state of mind that we think we can do it all. And this is what the Bible is saying is the standard of depending upon what, what, on ourselves. This is what Egypt stands for. And so when we turn to verse 8, this powerful ruler of Egypt is rattled by a dream. He admits this in court. He shares his dream with all the wise men. There is zero help in interpretation. There is zero way forward. And the ruler of this very, very powerful society on earth is still unsettled. There's complete silence in the courtroom after Pharaoh shared his dreams. Complete silence from the wise men and the magicians. What are they going to do next? It's only after this that the chief 
cup bearer speaks. And this is my central point for the first 13 to 15 verses, that until Pharaoh admitted his dreams, until he asked for help and did not get it, and until the wise men also admitted that they could not assist this great ruler of Egypt and could not even point a way forward, only after that did the cupbearer speak. And even when he speaks, he is beginning by admitting his own faults. And then through the darkness of the situation, a ray of light starts opening up to the entire situation. So what's the essence? God waits for men and women to collaborate by admitting their inability to handle complicated situations. The tool God used was two sets of dreams and the response of the pharaoh, the response of the wise men, the response of the magician and even the cupbearer about their inabilities. Once all this was admitted, light began to break into this situation. And that leads to my second theme, which is that God is the one who sets up people, situations, and the timing for Joseph's wisdom to shine through and his character to shine through. We are told somewhere in verse 14 and 15 that Joseph is very quickly fetched from prison. He is quickly cleaned up. He is brought to the palace. And we all know the way things unfold. And the only thing that Joseph says to Pharaoh after being introduced to Pharaoh is this. A very brief statement. It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Now let's just step back a little bit without jumping ahead into the story. When he has said this, Joseph does not know what the dream is. Because the dream comes after he says this. Everybody else in the room probably knows what the dream is. Pharaoh does not know Joseph. Joseph is a foreigner with nothing left to lose. He's just been brought out from prison. If you think about it, Joseph will lose nothing if he does nothing. But Pharaoh has everything to lose. Pharaoh has everything to lose. He doesn't know how much he's going to lose, but he's very unsettled. And lastly, both Joseph and Pharaoh have no clue what to say next. And then, and that is why Joseph speaks verse 16, which is also the motto of a wise man. It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Remember, he still doesn't know the dream. He still doesn't know the dream. So let's step back and let's take a helicopter view about what Joseph has been through thus far. What has Joseph been through? Let me submit a few points to you. The first is that Joseph was a man in isolation. He has just been brought out of prison for the second time. And in both cases, when he was in prison, it was due to injustice. Secondly, he was a gifted man in this isolation. He was betrayed by his family. He was sold into slavery. He worked as a reliable slave, was cheated by a woman's false accusation. But he is gifted, but not bitter. He does not share his sad life story with the Pharaoh. He can read the situation. He could easily do a sob story and say, oh, you know what? Before I interpret your dream, this is what all I have been through. You've got to help me now, and then I will interpret your dream. He knew he was gifted. He knew he was in isolation. But 
we also see that he had tremendous self-control. Very brief statement before a very powerful man. It is not in me. God will give a favorable answer. And that tells me that over these years, with both the highs and lows of being in a foreign land, going through isolation, going through success, being thrown in and out of prison, Joseph has actually increased in his faith in God. With this increase in his faith in God, he has decreased in his faith in himself. He has decreased in his faith in human institutions. He had asked two people in prison to help. Only one of them helped him. But all his words, especially in verse 16, suggest that he wants the glory to go to God. And after saying this, Pharaoh starts explaining the dream. I mean, he recounts the dream. And then in verse 25, Pharaoh tells, Pharaoh, uh, uh, Joseph tells Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. In other words, he has just been taken out of prison. He has just met Pharaoh. He has pointed towards God. He has not heard the dream. After he hears the dream, he does not get a long time to pray, long time to fast, long time to study the culture of Egypt, do psycho psychoanalytical personality profile building of the Pharaoh, study the Pharaoh's background. He does not have time, but he has confidence. And he speaks with the authority and the confidence of God's own ambassador because he says both the dreams are the same, God is going to act. Now, how do you think Joseph got this confidence? How do you think he was so confident? Let me submit to you that Joseph could not have been this confident had he not been walking in constant intimacy and a clear communion with God. That's the basis of Joseph's confidence. So let me step back and come down to 2022. What about you and I? Do we know that we have fellowship with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit on a moment-to-moment -moment basis? Or do you and I also need a crisis to get close to God? May I also submit to you that one of the reasons Joseph was so confident in this peculiar situation, strange people, strange situation, strange background, and the strange timing, was that he did not react, but he responded. Reacting and responding are two English words, both beginning with the letter R. But they take you in two completely different life directions. If you react to your situations, if you react to surroundings, if you react to pressures, you're letting things get to you, you're letting things influence you. But when you respond, you impose God's priorities and God's values on that situation. You say, this is easier said than done. But if you look back at Joseph's life, he could respond in Pharaoh's situation because he had a habit of responding in the right way over the time he was in Egypt. He does not have a trace of bitterness or self-pity in any of the two statements that we have here heard thus far. And after explaining the meaning of the dream, which all of us are very familiar with, if you look at verses 33 to 36, Joseph 
takes the meaning of the dream and translates it into practical action for Pharaoh to act on the meaning of the dream. Many of you are working, whether you're in a church, whether you're in a school, whether you're in a corporate organization, practicality is always something that people at the top value. You know, they want to, if you get to meet your CEO or the top person in an organization, they generally have a high pressure on time. And even if you have something that you want to suggest to them, they would say to you, so what do we do? What do we do about it? There's a very high premium on practicality. And I would submit to you that in the biblical framework of things, wisdom is the knowledge to apply knowledge. And Joseph didn't just have the ability to interpret dreams, but he could tell you what to do about that dream in practical ways. Look at this policy memorandum that he gives Pharaoh, verses 33 to 36 in modern language. He provides a job description. Look for a person with these qualities. He gives the entire countries a national organogram. Hire so many overseers, hire so many grain managers, managers of storehouses, and so on and so forth. Then he gets more specific. He says, at least 20% of the national harvest should be collected every seven years annually. This is not in the dream. This is a translation of the meaning of the dream into a framework that the pharaoh would understand. He also says, the grain has to be stored and guarded. You may wonder what's so significant about this. Well, if you're following international events, and if you're looking at what's happening besides the war between Ukraine and Russia, there are lots and lots of reports of the Russians taking away the grain of Ukraine and not shipping it to world markets. So with a lot of wisdom, Joseph has said, don't just collect the grain, but guard it. And I'm sure that the Ukrainians and the Russians would appreciate the wisdom, the practical wisdom of Joseph in the current situation in 2022. Very, very practical. And let me ask you again, when you and I read the Bible, can we translate it into action? Or do we just get stuck with the meaning of things in their context? So let me close with my final section, which is that God always promotes for a purpose. We read that in the last 20 verses of Genesis 41, which is from verses 37 to 57. So this is almost like a script for a Hollywood movie. You know, there's a rags to riches story. He's brought to the uh, top and there are very fancy sermons titled from pit to the palace. You know, very uh, filmy masala kind of ending of this chapter. But what are the main points we can take away from this sudden meteoric rise of Joseph? What are the purposes of God in the promotion of this one man? Turn with me, if you will, to Proverbs chapter 21 and just verse 1. The Bible says, A king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. All kings, all presidents, all emperors have always been in the palm of God's hands. Everyone who rules has always been in the palm of God's hands. The second thing I want to suggest to you, God is not at all limited by the context and the surroundings we may be in. Joseph was given a signet ring. He was promised to one of Pharaoh's daughters. In other words, he was fully integrated with the culture and the society of Egypt by promotion, by marriage, and by his formal vocation. You and I may be uncomfortable with this. 
what if your promotion takes you in a direction that is not compatible with your Christian background? This is what happened to Joseph. This is also something that happened to Daniel several years later. And I think this is something worth reflecting upon because promotion is not necessarily an easy thing to handle. To uh, 200 years ago, a Scottish essayist, Thomas Carlyle, uh, wrote something very profound, and I want to quote uh, something he, state, he stated to you. Adversity is sometimes hard upon a man, but for the one man who can stand prosperity, there are a hundred that will stand adversity. Precious few are those who can keep their moral, spiritual, and financial equilibrium while balancing on the elevated tightrope of success. We also see that the times and seasons in which the sudden promotion Joseph had were completely in God's control. This is something we admit, but we are frustrated by. It's easy for you and I to control our resources. We can control things in space, but we have no control over time. Can you honestly predict that if you go to bed, you will, of your own accord, be able to get up exactly when it is morning? Can you predict that day in and day out? No. You have no control over the times and seasons because only God has control over that. And finally, I will suggest to you that God's purposes have been the same from the start. This is the same God in Genesis 41 who is the same God of Genesis chapters 1 and 2 and 3. This is a God who is a creator. He's the one who gave life, who sustains life. And that's the purpose for which he allowed Joseph to be promoted. So there are many, many things that we can see from Joseph's life. And finally, Joseph is given the entire control of the resources of Egypt to overcome the famine that God had designed for multiple purposes. And I don't have any great conclusions to offer because we are still in the middle of this story cycle. There are still a few more chapters ahead. So let me conclude with a very, very few thoughts for your submission and for your meditation. How do we know that Joseph had the right attitude? Why would I title this sharing of a few thoughts, Attitude Predicts Altitude? Let me read for you a certain passage in the book of Psalms that interprets what Joseph went through. And you will find that in Psalm 105, verses 16 to 24. And this is the scripture interpreting Genesis chapter 41. Reading from, Genesis, reading from Psalm 105, verses 16 to 24. It's explicitly about Joseph. And he called for a famine upon the land. He broke the whole staff of bread. He sent a man before them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. They afflicted his feet with fetters. He himself was laid in irons. Until the time that his word came to pass, the word of the Lord tested him. The king sent and released him, the ruler of peoples, and set him free. He made him lord of his house and ruler over all his possessions to imprison his princes at will, that he might teach his elders wisdom. Israel also came into Egypt, thus Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham, and he caused his people to be very fruitful and made them stronger than their adversaries. So the key is found in verse 19 of the psalm, where the Bible says, 
until the time that his word came to pass, the word of the Lord tested Joseph. So only when he, in God's eyes, had passed that test was the meteoric rise possible. It's not possible beyond that. We cannot say, oh, Joseph had this fantastic character. No. It is a conglomeration of multiple factors. One of the key factors which was Joseph responded positively to the word of the Lord testing him. That was his attitude. And that was one of the key ingredients in his success, not for himself, but for all the people of Egypt as well as, as, well as Israel and the people in the world at that time. And in many ways, the New Testament endorses this. The other person who is also exemplary in humbling himself is the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's turn to Philippians 1. And I will kind of reflect on the fact that Jesus also had the right attitude. If you read from Philippians 1, I will just read verses 5 to 10. We see Paul endorsing the importance of the right attitude. Paul writes, have this attitude in yourself, in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. So this is very similar to what Joseph experienced, that he humbled himself, he had the right attitude, and when God's word had tested him, and when God had seen that he was responding in the right way, the red carpet for his rise was set up. So I want to submit that meditating on the word of God and not reacting, but responding to each situation in every way that we know God expects us to respond is how we can emulate Joseph's attitude in our lives. And we can't make a cause and effect statement saying that if I have the right attitude, there should be an altitude that goes higher and higher. It doesn't work like that. But it certainly has a correlation. And we see in the life of Joseph that when he could be least bothered about being important, God exalted him. He didn't have this maturity when he was 16 or 17 and when he received those dreams. But by this time, when he was even brought into Pharaoh, very first words that came out of his mouth was, it's not in me, but God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Let me just close in a word of prayer. Father, I give you thanks that you want us to be people who don't just react to the situation we, we are found in, but to respond. Help us to be like Joseph. Help us to leave the things in the past, leave the injustices that may have been done to us, and help us not to clamor after promotions. Help us to walk before you in truth and in spirit. I thank you, Lord, for this very rich passage that speaks to us even four to 5,000 years later. In Jesus' name, amen.